Welcome to Vaginance. This episode, we are tackling the perhaps morbid but extremely important subject of death and end-of-life care and how to prepare uh, for your own impending doom or for the people you love. <laughs> so casual. <laughs> <laughs> impending doom. Your so own metal voice. <laughs> impending doom. <laughs> um, You're gonna die. It's important stuff, and people don't like to think about it. Um, we read a book called The Art of Dying Well by Katie Butler, and we would definitely encourage all of our listeners to take a listen or read that. Um, we think it's a really helpful resource for this. Anyways, that's what we're discussing today. I'm Becca. I'm Taylor. I'm Maggie. I'm Jules. And we're so glad y'all are here. But won't be forever. <laughs> for now. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here for now. (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) Before we jump into today's episode, we want to give a quick shout out to the badass ladies behind the Crime Scenes podcast. If you love movies and true crime, you got to check them out. Hi, everyone. I'm Bolton. And I'm Grace. We are true crime addicts, movie buffs, former lawyers, and friends since college. And we are the hosts of Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. If there is one thing we love, it's a good movie that starts with that infamous on-screen text that says, based on a true story. Or based on real events. Or even better, based on a true crime. But how much of that movie you're watching is based on the real thing, and how much of it is Hollywood drama? What are they leaving out? What are they adding in? And how do the people from these real crimes feel about these movies being made? Well, we are here to help you. Join us as we recap a new movie each week that is based on a true crime while also giving you extra info about the real events these movies are based on. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Crime Scenes Pod. So join us to learn more about the movies and the true crimes they are based on. That's Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Today... We're talking about a book, The Art of Dying Well, by Katie Butler. But you had another financial thing that you did this week that was pretty topical, wasn't it? (laughs) What what happened? (laughs) Someone help me. Oh, we got life insurance. That's nice. It was a big weekend. Hey, you know, I learned something about life insurance uh, in the past couple weeks that That I should have known before. Well, you think that I would have known, but I didn't. If you participate in clinical trials... You can't get life insurance. Holy shit. Uh, really? Well, if you admit to participating in clinical trials. <laughs> or like if you die doing a clinical trial, that's probably not a legitimate death against the policy. Well, also because the side effects and long-term side effects are unknown. Uh. And so life insurance companies won't take a risk on you because they're like, you took experimental drugs. We don't know what that means for the rest of your life. So, Yeah. I'm excited to know that you got insurance because you can explain it to us now. Yeah, yeah life insurance. Yeah. So what Pretty was your excited about what it. was your primary reason for getting it? Like, what was the motivation? Um, Zach and I do a lot of really stupid, high risk stuff. <laughs> like our chance of dying in a year is probably 10x most people. Like just going snowboarding once. Yeah, after I found out about those fucking tree wells, wells, I'm never going snowboarding. What are tree wells? Or skiing ever, (laughs) ever again, because it's the most horrifying thing I've ever heard of. What is it? The best. Okay, so a tree well is something that forms, like, when you have a big coniferous tree, like, on the mountain, Mm -hmm. and the snow falls, the snow sort of 
falls and builds up around the tree, but mm-hmm. it leaves this empty space under it mm. where the tree is sort of protected. So it kind of makes this well mm-hmm. in around like mm-hmm. it can be really deep, like mm-hmm. 10 feet mm-hmm. because you have like so much snow. Um, and if you like skiing in the trees, which we do, you have to be really careful not to get too close to trees that might have a tree well and you might not be able to see it. Mm. Because what happens is oftentimes people fall in head first. Mm. And, they and then the die. snow falls in on top of them. Oh, my God. And you and cannot get, get out. Yeah. Well, it's not that you get crushed, but like you're literally suspended like upside suffocated. down and you suffocate. Yeah, it's not not good. That's just one thing that can happen to you <laughs> while you're skiing, and it's horrifying. I have no interest <clears throat> in snow sports. Yeah, so we me neither. <laughs> I will be in the hot tub at the bar waiting. Me and for Taylor, your ass. Be, me and Taylor Beck will be drunk waiting for you <laughs> to finish. I'm gonna be film. wearing my slippies by the fireplace, fucking sipping hot uh-huh, uh-huh. and listening to like romance novels on audiobook for all of us to listen to. <laughs> that sounds ideal. <laughs> Well, I love snowboarding, so I will snowboard and then I will meet you. Deal. For Unless you fall in a tree well, and then we'll have to go fuck yeah. your ass. Yeah. So, like, put me as a beneficiary. <laughs> That's what I said. It's I another. It's <laughs> a whole another discussion we need to have. Um, but yeah. So between like snowboarding, scuba diving, flying small airplanes, like we do all sorts of things that are high risk. As far as you know, the what are those tables called? Starts with an A. Oh, actuary. Actuarial Wait, so did you tables. admit all this? Did you have to take like a, a questionnaire on your life insurance of like what are activities you do and like someone had to assess your risk value? Yeah, I put in all the diving stuff. All the yeah. scuba diving? Yeah. And so like whether I'm certified, what depth I dive to, that kind of thing. Do I dive in caves? What's the, I did not disclose. What's the incentive of being honest? Why wouldn't everyone just say, I've never smoked, I've never drank in, if I've never done it. If I, if I die oh. diving in the next year, they ask you like in the last two years or the next year, uh-huh. Yeah. have you or do you plan to dive, fly small yeah. airplanes, like all of those things. So she says, I don't go <clears throat> cave diving, and then she dies cave diving. They're going to be like, fucking no. Right. Like, I'm like, planning to go diving again probably in right. January. So it would behoove me, like, I want my policy to cover it if possible, and I need to go read, um, and or I need to find out if I need supplemental insurance. Like, we usually get extra diving insurance when we dive in case you need decompression treatment or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um. But yeah, so you don't necessarily want to lie about those things if not disclosing it will void your policy Mm. if you die that way, because then it defeats the point. Right. Okay. Got it. That's a good incentive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's why you wanted to get it is because y'all in general tend to make riskier or more. Daily life's pretty dangerous for me. (laughs) Getting in a fucking car is dangerous. Getting in a car is dangerous. Someone got bit at a park by a snake this week (gasps) here in town. Really? Died? Not as far as I know. Uh, (laughs) What kind of snake? How'd it happen? A copperhead. I don't know. I didn't go read about it. Zach was just like, two people bit. (laughs) I was like, okay, (laughs) cool. God damn it. I'm fucking done with snakes. I'm never going outside again. (laughs) I saw um, a motorcycle accident video on Reddit that I cannot see. No, 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 Right. We ride motorcycles, all of that. Yeah. Cannot. No, bad. It's bad. Phil was like, should I watch it? And I was like, no. Why? Why would you watch that? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you're never allowed to buy a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're insanely dangerous. 
and so much fun. Ugh, <laughs> I'd rather be miserable and alive. <laughs> Would you though? That's a great lead in for that. Is, that is the question. <laughs> wow, this is some. We don't even need to talk about the book. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so we got like just 10 year term life insurance, million dollar policies for each of us. And not only is our risk of it's not that I think either of us is going to die, but it is like a constant fear in the back of my mind mm-hmm. that one of us will die and won't have the financial security to just do nothing for a year. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I don't anticipate losing your spouse to be a very pleasant experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exciting. So once you buy insurance, like you went online, how did you, what was the process of finding life insurance? How did you determine what was legit? What seemed shady? Did you get advice from other people? Like what was your kind of, how did you start addressing it? Okay. So we procrastinated for a long time because this has been on our list since at least early snowboarding season, like back on top priority on the list. <laughs> top priority. Any sport like that makes you think I should get life insurance <laughs> is not something I want to be participating in. It's not necessarily the sport, but it is like knowing how Zach snowboards, <laughs> man's crazy. Okay, man does like, risky stuff. He follows my father into trees, and my father comes out of trees with like his expensive snowboarding jacket, like gashed open and stuff. So if Zach, who is not as athletic as my father, is willing to try to follow and keep up with him, there's a good chance Zach will die. <laughs> He's been doing it for over a He's like, "Mm, I need to call the insurance company. Yeah. I mean, he's been doing it, doing that same thing for over a decade now. But, you know. But you are like insurance for Zach. Yes. Me, when I think of you two getting insurance, you're the unlucky one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're the one that gets bit by snakes, like breaks bones that no one's even knew could break. Like, Yeah. What bones yeah. have you broken that? Actually, none. My bones don't break. Every All the soft tissue around them gets destroyed. Oh, my God. This mm. sounds terrible. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> Nothing brought me more joy during an injury <laughs> than Maggie's absolute displeasure when a doctor brought my x-ray back on my ankle after she had finally convinced me to go get the x-ray. And she took me. <laughs> And like, like wheelchair me in. Broken. Her ankle should have broken. <laughs> and the doctor came in and said, So sorry this took a while. I sent it off to another radiologist to review because I didn't believe that it couldn't have even like a crack. <laughs> He's like, But no, the bones are fine. Wow. Yeah, but wow. Your bones still fucked though. <laughs> my ankle is so fucked. And now the bones in that leg. My ankle are like, the circumference is probably about an inch bigger than the other one because the bones were under so much stress that they've like super calcified. Cool. We got super bones. Super bones and really fucked soft tissue. (laughs) It sounds like your body's trying to like incredibly hold you. That of all people you could listen to, though, that you chose to listen to me, I do not take that lightly. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't help that you were right, but... Um, life insurance, aging, bah, 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 let's do this. So this episode, we all read a book. We did. And uh, it's called The Art of Dying by Katie Butler. The Art of Dying Well? The Art of Dying Well. Yeah. There is a book called The Art of Dying. Oh, interesting. Many. 
Yeah, there are lots of books about the art of dying, but this is the art of dying well. Yes, the art of dying well by Katie Butler. Um, yeah, we for months now we've kind of been talking casually about wanting to talk about life insurance and end of life care and how to financially prepare yourself and your loved ones um, for your impending doom or theirs. Um, and we're finally doing it. We're finally yeah. talking about it. And this book was awesome to me. I felt like it should be required reading for all humans. I completely agree. Well, I sent it to like everybody I knew. I'm already a little bit, I don't know the right word, sad because I sent it to both my parents and I guarantee you both of them are not going to read it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my mom started reading it immediately. And so my mom, she was like, thanks, I'm reading something else right now. And I like told my dad about it. He's like, oh, cool. Okay, cool. Anyway, the Olympics, Maggie. And I was like, <laughs> read the fucking book. It's because like, people don't want to think about it. People yeah. don't want to think about their inevitable death because yeah. all of us are going to die. All of us. Every single one of you listening is going to die. <laughs> yeah. But the point of the book is actually less about the moment of death and the potentially years and years leading yeah. up to yeah. it yeah. in which making your decisions in advance about how you want those years to progress and how you want people to make mm-hmm. decisions if they're having to make decisions on your behalf or even thinking through those decisions yourself before you're in in that like phase of life yep um and just how much that can make your life better so much better. all the way up until the moment of death yeah it is insane and i found this book so helpful in giving actual practical advice on like these are the specific things you can do to prepare for aging and make sure that you are educated on your options Mm -hmm. and make sure you know or make sure you have a team of people that you trust that can make those decisions for you if you can't make them make sure you know what you want like really think about how you want the last third you know assuming you are lucky enough to age you know and die from old age like they really think about how you want those years to be Mm -hmm. because you do have a say a little bit in like how your health progresses and how you can control the narrative around your health and your medical choices i also i listened to the audiobook so i don't think i looked at the physical book but i know she referenced at least some links to having templates for forms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah as well and i was like yes because some of that shit you have to pay lawyers for yeah and so having some templates at least to get started is super cool it's a good book i'm fully support this book becca thank you for recommending thank you Mm -hmm. for recommending it well and the templates that was my first choice maggie when you said like neither of your parents will read it even though you need them to and i was like we just need to compile like a workbook it's like (laughs) here are the 10 pages read these two pages this out (laughs) fill this out we're gonna sit down over coffee and we're gonna fill this out at least a preliminary and then you can go home and you can keep thinking about this and if we want to update in six months let's get together can we actually do this because i'm seeing seeing my mom in a couple weeks and i know she's not gonna read this fucking book yes and same with my dad I would love that. I would love to do that. And I know my mom, like, as soon as my mom started listening, she was like, like, texting, like, fury texting me being like, just, you know, I don't want this, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, that's great, but you should put it in writing. writing. I can't, like, show the doctor a text, you know, like. From, like, eight years ago. Yeah, like, he's <laughs> I swear it's mom. And I was like, put it like, listen to the book, get the templates, put it in the like in the templates that she provides. Yeah. But um, yeah, this is a book. But as I was listening to it, I because I also listened to the audiobook, I was like, 
already thinking I'm going to re-listen to this multiple times yeah. throughout my life and like revisit it and think about it again. Well, in the format of the book is broken down in like, are you in this sort of age range? Is this sort of... Mm-hmm. She, she, at the beginning of different chapters, she asks you questions about like your health, your ability to walk certain distances easily, all of that. So you can kind of figure out, okay, this chapter is for you at this stage of your life or your parents' life if they're starting to navigate aging. And then these other chapters, like it mm-hmm. sort of advances through the different phases of decline. Yeah. And then prepares you with what you need to actually have in place for that phase and the the decision points you have to face. I thought it was really interesting and something I hadn't really thought about was she talks a lot about uh, falling and how that's like one of the biggest things that determines your quality of life is if you can find ways to prevent yourself from falling it's you're more likely to stay out of a nursing home longer. You're more able, you're more likely to be able to stay in your home longer. Uh, you'll have less health issues. Like so much of the, it, like the beginning of the end starts happening when people start falling. And I've seen that with all of like my grandparents, like people, parents that have died, like it's when they start falling down Mm -hmm. and she gives you helpful tips and like addresses, like these are ways you can avoid that. Like you can literally have people come into your home and show and help you and show you what are ways like to furniture, move furniture. Exactly. Put handrails in. Like there are people that specialize in these things that can actually tell you these are the best ways to prevent a fall. Like accessible home design, physical therapy, when they start to notice, like, if your step length decreases quite Mm -hmm. suddenly, that's usually like an indication of high fall risk in the next Mm -hmm. few weeks. Mm -hmm. So there was another book I'd read a few months ago, I think it's called like The Great Indoors or something. And there was just this one chapter in there that was about... Um, designing like apartment buildings and living facilities for different types of handicaps. Mm -hmm. So even like autistic adults who um, can develop life skills and live on their own, but in this community setting, but then some of the ways that they design noise dampening Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, because they, some of them can be so sensitive to that type of stimuli. Mm -hmm. And it was also breaking down some really cool research facilities like a, so it was a nursing home that's attached to a major university that Mm -hmm. does a lot of research on aging. Mm -hmm. And so they have, it's so smart. And they have this like really collaborative relationship with the people who live there where the people can opt into different studies. And there were some really cool ones about falling where there are some research teams designing um, like the predictive stuff mm-hmm. where it can track sort of your your step length. Mm-hmm. And then also they took like the Wii cameras from the Wii, uh, Nintendo Wii mm-hmm. system and trained it so that it it's not just like watching you all the time, but it's watching your silhouette in a way that it can identify when you fall. Because the other thing is your risk of dying soon after a fall goes up dramatically the longer you're left on the ground after Mm. a fall so getting care to you immediately when you've fallen makes a big difference for you recovering and continuing to live well after that Mm. so it's like not only falling but falling and staying on the ground for hours right best in life alert people right yeah Yeah. Yeah. and so this was something where they had tested it out in this facility and as soon as the system identified someone had fallen then it immediately lets the care nurse know Mm. so their response time is amazing yeah don't the apple watches now have that ability as (laughs) well 
I read I read something about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I read something that like this guy's life was saved because he fell and the Apple Watch like alerted her as emerging contact and was like potential fall. That's awesome. And it's, it's like, so great. I can also because it monitors your heart rate. It can be like potential heart attack or you know right. like something's yeah. going wrong. Your situation. Probably, <laughs> honestly, one of the best things that could come out of like technology innovation and design is like the ability to help like aging communities in ways that we've never even thought of before. Well, and, and just quality of life. Exactly. Well, and part of what this um, was really fascinating in the breakdown of that book was how much more quality of life and independence the people felt like they had mm-hmm. because someone's not checking on them every hour to see if they've fallen. They're being notified by, exactly. by just a device. So you can actually live more independently because you have a device that'll let someone know if you need them. And you're taking the burden off of, you know, the people you love worrying about you constantly if mm-hmm. they know that there's something that's constantly checking in on you. But the other the third thing I was going to say about uh, falling was um, medicines, which I never thought about before how, you know, as you get older, you tend to like stack on the medications. And if you're visiting different doctors, they're not necessarily looking at how all the medications are reacting with each other. And there's a whole website and I wrote it down. One of y'all might be able to remember. She mentions it in the book. Um, There's a whole website that's just dedicated to dangerous medications for elderly people. And when and I went on there, and it will literally list all the medications and their potential side effects. And a lot of them, the reasons why they're dangerous is it causes dizziness and fogginess, and it makes your likelihood of falling increase. And so like... Her whole point in the book was make sure you're paying attention. You can visit specialists that will look at all of your medications, bring a list of your medications or bring them all in a bag, and they will sit down and go through every single one of them with you and make sure that none of them are going to cause brain fog, dizziness, or anything that's going to make you more likely to fall or any other kind of potential dangerous situations like dementia and Alzheimer's. On that note, I was going to say, I think pharmacists in our society and in the world in general are extremely underutilized. Yeah. Because they are doctors and that is their job. Mm. Yeah. Is to make sure that the drugs you are taking do not adversely interact with each other. But so many people will get drugs filled at different times, right? Like Mm -hmm. one doctor prescribes this, they go pick it up this month, two months later they go in and like you can't expect the pharmacist to memorize, you know, hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. Or they'll get them filled at different pharmacies. Right. Or they'll get like one pain pill here one pain pill there like shit like that but if you have one pharmacist you can ask them that's yeah. their job yeah. like you can go hey i'm taking these drugs like am i overdosing like am i taking too much pain medication mm-hmm. am i taking something that will adversely react with this other drug that's what pharmacists do and like nobody uses them for that I, at least to their full potential. I certainly have never thought to actually use a pharmacist for their knowledge. I just have them. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, they yeah. just hand me my drugs. And yeah, you could ask them questions. Like, they probably would love to answer some questions. Like, thank God. And do something different with their day, right? Like, <laughs> Well, and I, on that same chapter, I think when she was talking about that, um, about dangerous side effects or not, uh, she, she kind of starts the chapter off telling these basically horror stories of like, you know, 
we'll say whatever, Lisa is taking drug A for her blood pressure and that causes drowsiness. Insomnia so then she, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it causes insomnia. And so then mm-hmm. she has to take drugs to help her sleep and that causes brain fog. And then they, now they think she's got on early onset dementia. So yeah. they've got her on a different drug. And it's just like, if you're, you need, what What was the term for the doctor who does like some sort of geriatric, geriatric specialist? Yeah. I can remember. I wrote it down, but I'll have to find it. But yeah, where they look at the whole person and all of the drugs they take and like, okay, well, this is probably what's causing this and this and this and this. It's amazing. And you can probably eliminate, you know, half of those drugs or medicines. Yeah. And then it's also like a longer term relationship where that geriatric specialist helps wean you off over the course of six to 12 months down to your actual essential medications and then gives you advice on other things you could do to deal with some of the symptoms that aren't aren't medical. Yeah. So if you're um, t- if you have to be on the high blood pressure medication, but that's causing insomnia, they work with you on other ways to treat insomnia mm-hmm. than adding another drug cocktail to the Which, mix. you know, decreases how much money you're spending on drugs mm-hmm. or on medicine. And it improves your quality of life if you're able to eliminate a lot of those, you know, unpleasant side effects. And drugs are so expensive. Like yeah. the amount of money spent on prescriptions, you know, as you age is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not something we think about, or at least we don't really have the space maybe in our heads to think about it in the moment, whether it's you or a loved one who's taking care of you. Like if you have X thing wrong with you, then we just want the doctor to prescribe something that'll make it better. And then if you now have a new thing wrong with you, we just want the doctor to prescribe something that'll make it better. And yeah, like you don't have the space oftentimes to put together that maybe these drugs are affecting each other or maybe there's other solutions because all you want is immediate alleviation of those pains or discomforts of the person you love or yourself so I think I don't know it was really good for me to hear that kind of broken down and because I feel like even as young people you you know you notice things start to happen to your body (laughs) and you start taking various prescription or over-the-counter medications and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's a lot flowing through your blood at any point in time and I don't know I just really appreciated that yeah I didn't realize I I had mentioned this to you when we were uh, a couple weeks ago I didn't know that a lot of the -the over-the-counter pain medications increase your chances of dementia which is something she talks about in the book um well and like ibuprofen and tylenol are great drugs, obviously, but if you take them every day, they're going to cause huge problems to your kidneys and livers. So I think that was a really good point that she brought up, too, is like, rotate that shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a quote in the book that says, Americans are the most medicated people in the world. And despite this, it has not improved their health or quality of life in significant ways, with a few exceptions. Lots of medical issues can be solved by better diet, not drinking and smoking. Mm-hmm. which is true, right? Like so many of, obviously they're like medicine is wonderful and there's like, uh, there are certain things you cannot cure without medicine, but it reminds me of Dr. Death actually, because one of uh, another fantastic podcast outside of ours. So good. Uh, one of the patients that they talked to that this doctor worked on for his back, he had a back issue. And instead of just 
dieting and exercising, which would have solved his back problems, like they knew that that would help. He decided to get back surgery because he wanted a quick fix and it ended up destroying his back and he can't walk ever again because, I mean, the doctor butchered him. Nauseous inside. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it it makes you think about like the medical industry in general. You know, you you see your doctor as someone that's trying to fix you or help you, but really you have to think about they're not necessarily looking at you as a whole person all the time because they have lots of patients and they have other incentives too. In the book, she talks about how a lot of uh, doctors and insurance companies are motivated by basically just giving the most expensive fix because through reimbursements and whatnot, like they're all getting paid out for that. So it doesn't benefit them to be like, just exercise and eat healthy. It benefits them to keep you sick or to give you the most expensive fix. That I think there's a whole lot wrong. Like I am deeply enrooted in the health industry, especially having a doctor as a mom. And I can tell you from life experience, there are good doctors and bad doctors. Right. And there are doctors there to make money and there are doctors there to help people. And there are businesses who employ doctors who are there to make money and businesses who employ people who are there to help people. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, even if you have a good doctor, they could be working for a bad business. Right. Right. So there's so many different things involved. And then like people think that doctors know everything and they fucking don't (laughs) like they don't. And one of the quotes that has always stuck with me, I think I heard it in high school was they call it private practice for a reason. It's practice. There's no perfecting of medicine. Like that is not a real thing that ever happens. Mm -hmm. So like when you see a doctor, you have to remember that they're probably just doing the best they can. Yeah. And like you could go do your own research and maybe make some choices for yourself too. And they've, well, they've also found that doctors get worse reviews if they suggest, if they sit down with their patients and suggest alternatives to like surgery or really aggressive um, medical treatment plans they get worse reviews in general because the patient isn't seeing either immediate results or don't think that they're trying to like urgently fix them. Mm -hmm. So like doctors are motivated in that way to also go that route because there's pressure from the family and she talks about that or they get sued. So they talk about a lot about that in the book as well as like the pressure from the family to just like the most aggressive, you know, oh, my 86-year-old mother has a terminal cancer. Let's put her on the most aggressive chemo when really that's not going to increase her life at all. And it's going to completely decrease the quality of her life. And the doctor knows this, but is 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 getting this pressure from the family and, you know, their loved ones to continue it. So they have to like do what, you know, they say or what they want. But it's it's really interesting. There's just a there's a lot of factors involved. And like you said, doctors are not infallible. Like you have to They're humans. They're yeah. humans. Like you have to, you know, find one that you trust that you think is has your best interest, but also tell them what you want because doctors can't read your mind and they don't always know what you want. And sometimes maybe you don't want that chemo or sometimes maybe you don't want a certain treatment plan and you're allowed to tell them no. You're allowed to say, what are my other options? Let's look at like palatable care was a big thing she talked about, which I didn't even know that term until I read this book. I literally told this to a family member this week. They were complaining about their doctor wanting to order all these tests and blah, 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 like couldn't afford it. And I was like, you do know that you have the right and ability to say 
No, like yeah. you don't yeah. want to do that. You can just yeah. walk away and never see them again. Like a lot of people think their doctors are like otherworldly or godlike and they have to do what their doctors like say. Their boss. It's like, it feels like your boss. Yeah. And it's like, I think you should look at it more of a, as a team, like a team thing. Or use like, them as a consultant. Yeah. Yes. Like, you're actually asking them questions, poking at the edges, informing them of your priorities in the situation. Yeah. So that they can give you the best possible advice, not the advice most people want who don't realize that they can ask for other options. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I would like to know what you learned in medical school that pertains to this and then use that to make my own choices. Yeah. They did a shout out. Or she plugged something that uh, we have talked about a lot and that's like concierge care or direct primary care, which me and Taylor both have and both like love so much. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm constantly singing the praises of my doctor. Like on Saturday we were all getting drinks and I was like, I have a sinus infection. My head hurts. I'm going to text my doctor. And I just texted her at like 7 PM on a Saturday and she immediately texted back and was like, Oh, well, have you tried this or this? That's amazing. Oh yeah. Another benefit of this podcast. Hell yeah. <laughs> huge, 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 mm-hmm. huge. It's, I love Love it. I've been meaning to reach out to mine because I, I want to schedule like a physical, like a yearly. Mm-hmm. This book has made me want to pay attention to my body more. Yeah. <laughs> like after while I was reading it, I was like t- writing in my to do list like, OK, schedule yearly physical, <laughs> get <laughs> get teeth cleaning, like do all these medical things I should be doing every year. What what were some big takeaways you got from this book, Becca? Mm, really like I loved kind of her overarching or at least one of her overarching motifs is just like maybe extending life is not necessarily your number one goal maybe maintaining a certain quality of life is your goal um and I thought that was a really lovely like thought experiment of kind of figuring that out because it's easy to say for ourselves but it's different when it's someone you love right like Mm -hmm. it's easy to say like oh yeah once it's a feeding tube cut me off but (laughs) if it's someone you love who hasn't told you explicitly what they want that's a horrifying idea you know um so I really appreciated the kind of dive that she did into that whole concept. Um, And she really tried to work at like alleviating any guilt that caretakers may feel or people who are ill may feel. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was really helpful and beautiful. Um, And then, yeah, the like sleep aids causing, giving you a 50% chance higher chance of getting dementia that really stuck like an insane bananas, an insane amount. Um, If you're misusing it. Yeah. yeah, I don't even or using it too much. Yeah, I think it's like if you're using it regularly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There was a lot. I really, I really do look forward to reading this again. And oh, and two, actually, two other things. Um, the she talks about towards the beginning five wishes, a website that I didn't confirm still exists, but I assume does. Um, where or is it three wishes? I think it was five. <laughs> oh, uh oh, three. It was three, three or five wishes. Now we're all doubting ourselves. I thought it was three. So. I have but the book. I'll look at it. If you like, or if your loved one like doesn't have them, like they are not ready to go no, through this in-depth, <laughs> they're not ready to go through this like in-depth breakdown of what they want in their like in their aging and their death, then they can just like go to this website and pick three wishes. Um, and they could be like, one of them was like, 
even if I can't respond, I wish that someone would hold my hand and talk to me while I'm in intensive care or something. Mm -hmm. Chapstick. Yeah, chapstick. I was like, yes, Yes. please. I love chapstick so much. I mean, like, well, I just hate dry lips so much. And the feeling of like your breath drying out your lips. That is the worst. That I have to like put extra on right before I go to bed so that it doesn't dry out before I fall asleep. Yeah. So when I am, if I am dying, (laughs) someone please, this is my one wish. That's your wish is chapstick. (laughs) Please keep me chapstick. I don't care if you're like, this is too much. Just go for Vaseline or something that's going to last. Just coat. Better too much than too little. Yeah. I'm going to get like I'd rather die from drowning in my Vaseline (laughs) than die with dry lips. <laughs> Duly noted. Yeah, that's funny. So when she mentioned, so yes, the yeah. like hold my hand and talk to me even if yeah. I'm not registering. That whole passage, there are all the ideas she had, but some of them were really unexpected for me. Yeah. Like, chapstick. Yeah. He's really good. Um, and then at the end, she talks about an organization called Pace. Um, yeah. Which was something like passionate of the uh, palliative. Yeah. Whatever. Something care for the elderly. And yeah. It's nonprofit, right? Yeah, it's through Medicaid. I like looked it up. Um, it's no longer, right? No, I think it's still around. Oh, I thought she said it dismantled in 2018. Oh, I don't know. I was looking at the website today and I didn't see that. Um, it just said to qualify, you have to be over 55 and in a relevant region. But maybe I'm. Maybe the website was older. Either way, Pace or a program like there's, I think there's other programs similar to it, but that sounded amazing. It sounded incredible. It also made me really want to like volunteer to hang out with old people. I I used to volunteer in New York uh, to play games with old people. And it was like one of the funnest things I ever did because you just like go and play board games with old people and like they don't give a shit. So it was just like they're funny and yeah, it was a good time. One of the most rewarding things we did in high school with the like health occupation classes was every Friday we would drive down to the like medical center and go to the Ronald McDonald house and like cook breakfast for everyone there. Super awesome. That's awesome. You know, Ronald McDonald house. Mm hmm. So they like do like affordable long-term care for people who have family members who are in long-term care. So mm-hmm. like very, it was next door basically to the children's hospital. Mm-hmm. So a lot of parents with children going through chemo uh. who can't afford to spend $200 a night on hotel rooms in yeah. downtown Houston to be right. close to their kid could get an affordable room at the Ronald McDonald house. Yeah. And then like we would go and make them breakfast every Friday. It sounds it very awesome. cute. Yeah. Okay, so it was five wishes. Oh. But she only listed three in the uh, samples. <laughs> okay. So the categories that she had were my wish for how comfortable I want to be, mm-hmm. um, which had things like I wish to have warm baths often. I wish to be kept fresh and clean at all times. I want my lips and mouth kept moist to stop dryness. I wish to have religious readings and well-loved poems read aloud when I'm near death. Um, the second category she had was my wish for how I want people to treat me. So that included like the pictures of loved ones in my room, my hand held and, and being talked to. Um, I wish to die at home if that can be done. And then the third was my wish for what I want my loved ones to know. Um, and that had stuff like I wish to be forgiven for the times I've hurt my family, friends and others. And if there's a memorial service for me, I wish for the service to include the following. And it had like different music songs, readings or other specific requests. Mm-hmm. 
which I thought was kind of nice. We were like, oh, maybe I pick the main flower that I want. Yeah. Because yeah. I always thought service. you'd have to include that in your will, but the will is more of a legal document. So this is like a good way to have all the things that you wouldn't put in your will yeah. noted. And I think to like relieve people of guilt and absolve them of some trauma you may have also caused them in life. Yeah. I think it's really for nice. For sure. And also just like if you think about it, not having these things laid out very clearly puts a massive burden on an already grieving loved one. Yeah. You know, so like when my dad died, he obviously didn't have any like anything listed out for what he wanted. So we had to we had to do everything and we had to think, OK, we didn't even and this thing is we didn't even think about until months later. We were like, oh, we didn't even think about donating his body or like seeing if we should like that because we were just all so traumatized and like trying to like figure out what all the steps we didn't even think about that stuff. And if he had a list of like, these are the things that I want done this, you know, then it would have been very easy to be like, okay, he wanted to donate his body or he wanted to do these things like check that off, you know, but it, it really is. I do feel like that is super valuable that, you know, you kind of touched on as well of getting out of this book is like, if, if nothing else, just fill out a fucking form, spend mm-hmm. 10 minutes, tell the ones that are going to be left behind that love you what you want. Mm-hmm. Even, even if you're still alive and you can't make decisions for yourself because you have dementia or some other kind of, you know, brain injury, make sure they know at what point you just want to be let go because your loved ones are most likely going to be in shock and they're going to do everything they can to save you, including probably very traumatic stuff that's not going to end up saving you and might even just make your end of life more miserable, not intentionally, unintentionally trying to save you. So just let them know. This is what I'm okay with. This is what I don't want. Don't give me intensive surgery if the likelihood of me surviving it is very low and it only extends my life by a week. Which reminded me of two things, one of which was um, if you are an organ donor, your license might say it, but it's worthwhile to tell your family as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was having a casual conversation with my dad the other day and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an organ donor. He's like, good to know. Yeah, I didn't even think to check my dad's ID. Yeah. And yeah, neither do doctors. Yeah. Just like, you know, that kind of thing. And then the other thing was just a story I was going to say about basically what exactly what you said it's like even if you're young it's good to have these things in line because accidents happen right yeah and it's like like you said your family's going to do everything they can to save you and that's not always necessarily a good thing yeah Yeah. if you're young you don't want to be kept in a vegetable state for 30 years yeah you know well i don't uh But because if you're young, like upload when my consciousness happens. to a computer, which is really what I'm hoping for before we <laughs> die. I'm like, please, science. But yeah, I think a lot of times us in our like, I don't know, middle young adulthood are like, oh, I'll worry about that later. Right. And so then you just don't do it. And like, I've had family members die at young ages and exactly what you're saying. It's like, no one knew what the fuck to do. Yeah. Because yeah. No one ever wrote down what he wanted or what they wanted. And and then you're always going to be burdened with the guilt of like, did I make the right decision? Is this mm-hmm. what they would have wanted? Did I cause them more pain and suffering? Mm-hmm. It's just that's a hard thing to put on your loved ones. Yeah, totally. I think also with like aging parents, it's really important that they write it down because if there are... Like, I have siblings, and I think that we could work together to, like, come up with 
plans and treatment and make those tough decisions. But if one of us feels a certain way is the path to take and our parents haven't written down in writing Mm -hmm. what they want because they're just like, oh, this one child of ours, we've had the conversation with. But if they don't put it in writing, then, you know, you're potentially blowing up all of your kids' relationships with each other or causing trauma because one of them decided to pull the plug or something. And in the book, she even says the doctor usually listens to the loudest voice in the room, not the the right one. The one who's most panicked or emotional or hysterical about it and won't take. Won't take no for an answer kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that exact same. My dad's family, there's five siblings and that exact same thing happened. My grandma had like a heart issue and it was kind of like, well, we can do heart surgery, but like she might not come out of it. But if she does come out of it, she'll probably live a couple more years. But like, Mm -hmm. it's really risky. Mm -hmm. And like you guys said, the loudest sibling wins. And she had heart surgery and didn't make it out of it. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're never going to know what the right choice was. Mm -hmm. And there's no good choice. Yeah. But if she had written something down, at least that burden would not have fallen on them. Yeah. Yeah. And then they wouldn't all all of them feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it just it can make things much better for you if you're going through, you know, post accident or late stage aging um, to have already thought about those things, written them down. And I think it is just such a gift to your family or anyone else who has to be making those decisions with you or for you. It's such a gift. When I'm a big proponent of making a power of attorney, someone who is not a direct family member Mm -hmm. as well, because they're going to be more rational Mm -hmm. in some of those choices, which I have it on my to-do list to make my power of attorney. And I just haven't done it yet, but this book definitely inspired me. I went into all my accounts Mm -hmm. and um, updated all my beneficiaries. So, you know, started that. Nice. Oh, nice. I didn't even think. You can even make beneficiaries and just do regular checking accounts. I was just going to ask, yeah. can I just go into my like my Schwab account and yeah. have beneficiaries? If you like, there? there's a little search tool and you just type beneficiary and it'll like link you to where you oh, need. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. Yeah. So even if you have like a hundred dollars, you can I'm make a beneficiary right for that. That's awesome. Make beneficiary. Another thing that. Well, we actually texted a little bit about this uh, maybe a week or two ago because it's something that I see that keeps cropping up in these books. And I think the first one was in Your Money or Your Life where she talks about how expensive it is to be lonely. Um, Not alone, not single, but lonely. And she uh, insists on the importance of community, um, even more so than partnerships. She really talked about how if you have community, you have someone to watch your dog when you leave town, you have someone to help you with lawn work, and then uh, and how that really saves you money in the long run, because then you also get to kind of pay it forward to your friends. But and then that really extended into this book, because that came up over and over again about how if you have people in your life who love you or know you or like they know when to when you're acting different or when you look different, they want to be there to bring you meals if you can't cook for yourself. They want to help support you. Um and I just, I don't know, I love that. Any any reminder of the importance of community, I think, is so important. Because mm-hmm. I think especially now, it's really easy to forget that because you feel like you can do everything on your own. Um, and you can maybe, but not For forever. Now. Yeah, not forever. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, it's yeah. very easy, and I think we kind of touched on it before we started recording, it's just very easy to isolate now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good or bad. Like, for some situations, it's good to be like, I don't want to be a part of this thing that I didn't feel comfortable at. Mm-hmm. 
have mm-hmm. an excuse, but you can also go in the other direction and be like, I haven't seen my friends in months, right? Yeah, yeah, right. totally. Well, I I feel like I, you know, when I was reading the book and thinking about that, what it really spoke to me was when she was talking about how to um, find different people to do different things for you. So instead of putting the, all the burden mm. on one caretaker, f- harvesting, you know, your community harvesting. What is the word I'm looking for now? <laughs> Harness. Harnessing. Harnessing <laughs> harvest the community. <laughs> uh, okay. You made that real creepy. Yeah. Uh, harness your community and kind of spread out the work. So, okay, you know, have like your, you know, your your daughter or son or whatever sit down with you and look at a schedule and say, okay, who can make, who can take me out to lunch on Mondays or every other Monday? Who can do my laundry once a week? Who can come by and help me bathe once every two weeks? You know, or who can we pay to do these things? Who can take me grocery shopping? Kind of like spread out that burden amongst a lot of people. And that's something that really stuck with me because I thought about that a lot with my dad and how the last, you know, six months of his life, he put all of that on me mm-hmm. and like the amount of guilt I felt when I couldn't be there every single day, you know, and thinking back, it was like really unfair for him to do that. But also it just like made me feel so much guilt anytime I couldn't be there and how much easier it would have been if I had had uh, his friends like also being like, okay, he's clearly ill. Let me take on like, you know, taking him out to dinner once a week or something. But he's completely because he had isolated a lot of his friends, honestly. It was completely on me to do all of that. Every day he was texting me, where are you? When are you coming back? And I had to clean up after him and make sure he was paying his bills and make sure he was eating and doing all these things, which I was not prepared for doing when I was also in the middle of school, trying to go back to school for a new career change and and starting a new relationship and all these other life things that were happening to me as I was 30 years old. And obviously, that's not how you want to spend the last moments. No. If I had known, like, it would have been so much nicer to just, like, have... I would have even happily paid for someone to come in and help Mm -hmm. take care of him, you know, and then just got to like take him out to dinner and like had some nice moments. Yeah. Instead, I was just stressed. Like it honestly, the biggest regret is not just getting to sit down and talk to him Mm -hmm. because I was so stressed about like dealing with the semantics of all of it and trying to figure out is he fed? Is he clothed? Like I didn't even just get to spend time with him, which, you know, that could be a huge benefit, you know, if you have a family member or someone that you love or care about that is not able to take care of themselves, maybe it's worth that extra money to to pay someone to take care of them and help them with those chores. And then you just carve out a little time to actually get to spend quality time with them and talk to them instead of just worrying about, you know, cooking for them or doing laundry, um, getting to sit and talk with them. You're going to want that, especially when they're gone. You're going to miss that more than anything else, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but sometimes it's worth the money to, you know, well, get that time back. I can't remember the like exact paying tolls. numbers because I've <laughs> blocked them out of my memory. But I know that if you're if you're qualified as like unable to work, then you get a certain amount for disability mm-hmm. and you can get a certain amount of like someone to come in and help you for a certain amount of hours a week. And it's definitely not like the amount of hours you need care. Right, just like, but it's something. But it's enough to relieve a family member for a day so that they can go do their fucking laundry. And we should have done that. And if like, I had known yeah. that, I would have looked into it. I had no idea, because I knew he was getting um, he was getting paid monthly, the Medicare or whatever, because he couldn't work. 
Yeah, I want to say it's like 20 hours a week or something like that. Yeah, if I which is enough for you to like have some time to yourself to go take care of the things because you still have a life, you still have laundry, you still have groceries, you need to get taken care of and yeah, all that stuff. And like you said, you had a relationship and friends and other things you need to do. Yeah, that was something else she highlighted was you know, if you reach advanced age and you have done well financially Mm -hmm. and you might need pretty constant one-on-one care, but if you have money to be able to take care of things in your caretaker's life for them. Mm -hmm. So if you have a family member who is spending all of their time taking care of you, but you can hire um, someone to help with their laundry and cleaning back at their house so that all of their sort of life stuff is taken care of, it takes a lot of the load and stress off of them as well, which is a great reason to be financially yeah, independent. You know, set. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about feeling guilty about it either. I feel guilty when other people are taking care of me. Mm-hmm. I can I can't imagine how other people must feel when they're, you know, caught, when they have to lean heavily on, you know, their children or Right. Well, and she also not talked paid, about, you know, yeah. labor. She even talked about paying. Like if you have one of your children who is spe- spending most of their time mm-hmm. taking care of you and actually being upfront with your other children that, you know, you are going to pay your caretaking child mm-hmm. for the time they're spending with you or you're allocating a certain, you know, bonus out of the inheritance or something because they're literally sacrificing their ability to work and make money and do it's other a lot things of work. in their life. They're working a job. Yeah. Um, but being upfront with the other siblings and stuff too so that at the end of the day, everyone is, you know, on the same page. Yeah. I think maybe, I don't know, I don't think it's so much a thing in our generation, but definitely in our parents' generation, I hear a lot of older people say like, oh, the reason I had kids is so someone would look after me when I'm older. And I cannot express how much I do not like that. <laughs> like, yeah, it that's upsets so me fucked up. so much because I'm like, you brought a whole person in this world to look after you when you're old. And that's the only reason, which I realize is just like a off the cuff thing that people say. Right. Social But it still upsets me so much every time I hear it that mm-hmm. I, it just. And then also, even in our generation, some people will say like, oh, who's going to take care of you when you're older if you don't have kids? Make some goddamn friends and right? see someone <laughs> exactly. for their goddamn it labor. Me so much. I'm like, is that why you're having kids? Like, yes. Don't put that on them. That, that is why sucks. a lot of people have children is because they want someone to take to be there when they're older, take care of them. It's a bad I, gamble. I, it's a bad gamble. People are a bad well, and gamble. It sucks to put that on somebody. It does. It really does. Yeah. And I, I, I get the sentiment too because it's like you put so much work into raising someone and you want them to be there for you when you're old. And I understand that, but. First of all, a child doesn't ask for you to have them and raise them. You are willingly putting that burden on yourself. And then you're expecting that and then you're putting the burden on them and expecting them to take care of you when they're probably at an age where they have young children because, you know, most people are having kids in their 20s and 30s. So you're going to be in your 70s when probably when you start to have issues, 70s, 80s, your kids are going to be in their 40s and 50s, right? Yeah. So they're going to probably have children that they're trying to take care of or maybe pay for college. They have fucking lives. And now you're going to put it on them to drop everything, probably the woman, because it's always the daughter, to move to whatever else to come and take care of you, which obviously they're going to willingly do most of the time because they're your fucking kids and they love you. But it's fucked up to expect it. And also 
fucking have money so you can pay for a goddamn person to actually do it because all these fucking millennials we're all up here complaining about unpaid labor which is fair because they don't fucking pay us enough but then you shouldn't when you're older expect people to do shit for free Mm -hmm. because you will we all have this mentality of people should get fucking pay what they're owed and we need to hold on to that mentality when we're older even if we have children because they need to be paid what they're owed and people taking care of your old ass need to be paid (laughs) what they're owed Preach to <laughs> So just fucking have money to pay people well, then to take care of you. Any aging people who are banking on millennial generation children to be able financially to take the time off to take care of them. Yeah. Are probably in for a very bad wake up. Call. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, yeah. even if you want to take time off to take care of someone in that stage of life, some people financially in our generation, there's no way they could do it. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. So this is a morbid question and I don't know the answer. It's sort of hypothetical. But what happens when your 70-year-old parent says, I expect you to take care of me. You're a millennial, you know, barely scraping by yourself and you literally can't. Then what? Do they go into like, do, are they homeless? They go into a nursing home paid for by Medicare. Yeah. So. And that- it's just shitty. It's just a shitty yeah. time. So I did appreciate in the book, she does offer different options based off of your income or your financial, you know, ability. So she does offer a lot of um, different things you can consider that, you know, if you don't have money, you could uh, go into like a state or government um, finance program. But again... It's not going to be as good as a private one. You're not going to be on a fucking mountain looking at the goddamn forest when you die. You're going to be off of fucking I-35 looking (laughs) at some, like, crazy person shitting in a bucket. Like, that's going to be your last moments on Earth. So fucking invest your money in the goddamn stock market. (laughs) Index funds, people. Index funds, seriously. That's a good takeaway. You had like, think about this. You're going to die one day, right? We're all going to die. Where do you want to die? Do you want to die in your lovely giant home surrounded by people you love and the fucking sun streaming in and there's birds and shit singing? Or do you want to die in a shitty old scary ICU <laughs> with people screaming at you? Yeah. Uh, like you, you, and of course you don't have total control over it, but you do have, there are ways you can set yourself up for success and like the probability of you getting to die at home or getting to have a peaceful death are increased when you have money. Well, and when you have plans. And plans. Plans. plans, plans yes. Plan. True. Cause you could have a lot of money and then you don't plan for this shit and you end up like in a painful surgery that you don't ever come out of. But yeah. It is really interesting to think about because it's like something. So it reminds me of that episode of Explain that uh, I watched that it was like part of the money season that we were all watching. And they talk about how they've they've done these studies where they put um, young people in a like one of those uh, brain scanning machines and they show them images that have been altered of their future selves to make them look very old Mm -hmm. and they ask them questions about that person and like they know it's them and they have to talk about like their future selves and they've shown that people uh in their in your brain when you're looking at a picture of your future self it is the same thing as looking at a picture of a stranger and 
So you completely disassociate yourself from your future self. You don't think about yourself as an older person and what that person needs. You care about as much as your older self as you do a complete stranger. Like in your brain, that is mind blowing to me. Yeah, that's a super cool study. I yeah. Like that. yeah, it was crazy because like, and and that just it, it. The point of that was like, it makes complete sense why we don't plan for the future as financially because we don't think of ourselves as that person in the future. Yeah, that's not us. That's somebody else. Oh. She has a section there where she talks about test driving carlessness. So like before the point at which you might need to sacrifice your license because of reaction time or visual impairment or, you know, any other reason you might no longer want to drive Mm -hmm. um, before that point actually comes, it's very helpful to test out how you how your like life functions and your week looks Mm -hmm. without a car while Mm -hmm. you still have the ability to drive. Mm -hmm. So they talked about like obviously the car sharing uber lyft yeah they mentioned a really cool service that was like go go grandpa or something which is a way if you don't have a smartphone mm-hmm. that you can use to hail a ride sharing service oh. you can use your old school phone to call go go grandpa and they'll connect you Aww. with an uber or lyft which is really cool that is mm-hmm. cool um, and then also setting up things like grocery delivery, like all the things you would normally use a car for, which I think we've had a lot of practice with this last year mm-hmm. in quarantine. Yeah. When it's like, okay, you don't have access to go out to these places or to go into these places. So a lot of us have sort of test driven and set up those things or helped parents do that. But I do think like, you know, six months before you might be giving up your license, it's a really good idea to start practicing. Yeah. I yeah. did teach both my parents how to use Uber. Nice. Yeah. You're doing your part. <laughs> I'm not sure that they fully understood it still, but I did give them a rundown. They're like, oh, wow. See, now my mom just complains about how Uber's too expensive. It, now that she, like, we taught her how to use it and she was, like, loving it and using it all the time. But now she's like, Uber's too ex- expensive. Come pick me up. <laughs> I'm like, ah, fine. <laughs> Buy her a bike. <laughs> she has a bike. <laughs> <laughs> One thing uh, that also kind of got my interest during this book. So like almost, oh my God, almost 10 years ago, I trained to be a labor and postpartum doula because I really liked the idea of like being a calm presence in a hectic event. Um, And there's a such thing as a death doula um, where you are with someone who maybe doesn't have someone else to be by them by their side or if they just need additional support to help keep the room calm. And I like really like want to do it now. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It sounds like a great like horror film. Like too. when I see my <laughs> stula, she feeds off the energy of the dying soul. She's like a demon that sucks the souls out. When I picture myself in that situation, it's just me bawling. <laughs> Do you like think that you're you would see yourself more as a helpful presence so that you can kind of separate like the emotions and like be that helpful person because i just like i don't that's part of why i could never be a doctor is i just can't separate the emotions from the work kind of thing i think that's also why i can't be a doctor (laughs) (laughs) that's what held me back for the record it's the only thing that i didn't go for medical school (laughs) <laughs> just too emotional and caring. Um, I, I, I tend to be, um, I tend to be able to keep a fairly calm presence. Um, and I think it would be even it, that would come even more naturally if it's not someone who I love. Like, um, 
yeah, if it's not a loved one of mine, I think it's something that I would be able to do. And it's something I really want to do. Yeah, no, I love that. I have a friend who volunteers at hospices and he's Mm. amazing at it. Um, And he's like one of the most loving, caring people I know, but he's just able to like be that person. Like, so cool. We need those people. Yeah. So that's awesome. That'd be great. That'd be cool. I also just think old people are cool. Like, I genuinely enjoy hanging out with older people. I think they have so many funny and interesting things to say about the world. Mm -hmm. At that point, you've like seen it all. You don't really give a shit and you just say what you think. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some old people can be like racist and annoying, but there's a lot of really cool old people out there and we treat them like shit and we should think about them more and care about taking care of them more because we're going to be those people one day. And she had a really good end summary of the book where she basically is like, you need to advocate for yourself because you're going to be in that position one day. If you're lucky enough, you're going to be eight, you're going to be part of the geriatric aging society and our laws affect like what, what we vote on now and the law, the things we care about now in politics and policies affect our quality of life later on. And like what we are able to have access to, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting. So we should care about having programs where people can have access to a better quality of life and, you know. And major changes like death with dignity laws across mm. the entire nation and not in yeah. only very yeah. specific states. Um, because you should be able to have those options to really control your end of life. And at the, at the point, if you are conscious and and in a state of mind to make the decision of when that transition point is for you between mm-hmm. quality of life having gone way past what you're enjoying anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because we should have better systems both for like mm-hmm. early in life through, through full life mental health care and then also not avoiding the topic of death and making it completely taboo because there are times everyone's going to die at some point in our current <laughs> <laughs> current uh you unless know. we get uploaded to the matrix julie yeah 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 until we get uploaded to the matrix we all are going to die at some point mm-hmm. and in our culture it's not okay to talk about it and not okay to plan to make that you know as mm-hmm. peaceful and joyful as possible well, yeah like when i was thinking about potentially having a life-altering disease i was like i don't want to burden people with this And, like, I'm sure there's a lot of people that feel that way where they're like, I don't want my family to go through this, but this is, I don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Right. And, like, the system is set up that I have to make my daughter suffer and take care of me. Mm -hmm. Or, like, I have to go be in a nursing home that's, I'm going to die watching someone shit in a bucket. (laughs) And it's like, they don't want to. Yeah. That's not what they want. Yeah. Right? Like. Honestly, that's one of the biggest motivators for me for having more money is like i want to be able to fucking like live in a nice spot when i die (laughs) like whether it's like a bougie ass fucking nursing home where they're giving you like the creme de la creme of treats every day you know you're getting like full-on candy bar set up um i did like in the last chapter when she was like there is a point at which Eating healthy or, (laughs) you know, doing all the things that helped you stay healthy late into life don't matter anymore. Live a little, enjoy, eat the bacon and the ice cream, whatever they want. Exactly. Which I've definitely seen with, like, elderly dogs. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Dogs. I've been doing that with my dogs for quite a while. I'm like, they're going to die soon. Say it again. I just want their life to be happy. 
There was a um, the podcast Criminal. If anyone listens to Criminal, it's so good. Um, there's an episode called Final Exit, and it's where she, the host, interviews this woman named Fran, who um, assim- essentially like assists people in like compassionate deaths and like assists in suicides. Like that's not the phrasing that she uses for obvious reasons, but there's like these hoods that you can buy um, or could at that point. Um, And it's like this like, yeah, hood you put over your head and then they fill it with a certain kind of gas. And these people like are totally anonymous and come to your home and like help you die by suicide um, through like for people who are terminally ill and stuff like that. And it was a really, really, really interesting episode, final exit. Um, and they, cause they dive into the laws surrounding that. And that is really interesting. um, So there's a famous doctor, Dr. Kevorkian, mm -hmm. who's like famous for that. And there's a movie about him played by Al Pacino, which I very much recommend. It's so good. But like spoiler alert, Wikipedia, Dr. Kevorkian, he used to like help assisted suicide, Mm -hmm. terminally ill people. And eventually, like, got a life sentence, mm-hmm. um, imprisonment for fucked up assisted suicide. What's the movie called, Doctor Kevorkian? I think it's called You Don't Know Jack because the doctor's oh. name was Jack Kevorkian. It's a cutesy name <laughs> <laughs> for a very interesting topic. Um, that did remind me. She ta- also talks a lot about hospice mm-hmm. and how a lot of people associate hospice with like, oh, you don't want to go there because you're never getting out of it. Like you're admitting you're going to die. Um, but she had some really good takes on it. And I, I really, it really made me realize how ignorant I was of, of hospice. I just, I only knew it very vaguely of like, oh, hospice is when you're like on your deathbed. Mm-hmm. Um, but she advocated very strongly for enrolling in hospice as soon as possible, asking about your options, uh, you know, figuring out, um, if you can apply for it, uh, once you feel like, you know, you're probably going to need it in the next mm-hmm. couple weeks, um, and how just how many benefits, you know, you can have going through hospice and all the things that they provide and all the care they provide. And it just, it really drastically increases the quality of your life. She's a big advocate for it, which I never even considered. It always just seemed like something you have to do if like Mm -hmm. you're fucked, but once you're like really knocking on death's door, where she's yeah. like, no, it could be six months, a year right. longer. And it actually provides a lot of mm-hmm. great things for your life. And in fact, the earlier you're in hospice care, which is largely focused around comfort care, pain management, mm-hmm. emotional know, yeah. therapy, like that type of stuff, um, can actually extend your end of life because you are more comfortable and healthy, that is not really going interesting. through crazy medical procedures or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, it makes sense. And I never thought about that. She kind of alludes to that a couple times in the book where... Yeah, basically, if you if you are if you feel more comfortable and happier, your life will probably be extended, even if you have, you know, some kind of like eventually like you'll surmise to your disease or whatever. Um, You're yeah, you're like more likely to live longer Mm -hmm. with palatable care and like non-invasive treatments. Palliative. Palliative. <laughs> it is also palatable. Palatable. Yeah. Palliative. Palliative. Palliative care. Whatever. <laughs> um, and you can unenroll from hospice. So if you go into hospice and you're basically foregoing more, you know, advanced medical treatment, but then some new procedure comes up and you are a really great candidate for it and you do want to take the risk, mm-hmm. you can unenroll in hospice care and return to traditional medicine. 
I, so I also didn't, and I, I don't even know if I still fully understand exactly if ho- hospice seems to just be a category of care because she was saying like, if one hospice doesn't accept your application for enrollment, a, n- a different hospice might, um, meaning that there's not just this like all uh, like omniscient. <laughs> I know it does feel that way. It does. It feels yeah. very religious. <laughs> it does. It feels like, yeah, you're entering the your church. last rites. Uh, and- yeah, like the 13th floor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, hospice is not just one singular organism that you have to make your way into. There are multiple hospices likely in your area. Um, and, and if not, you, oh, sorry, no, please. And it's not necessarily a place. There are yes. hospices yeah. that have facilities where people live, but most hospice in the U S these days is actually just an organization that can serve you mm-hmm. while you're at home or in the hospital. Yeah. And it sounds like there are specific, uh, jobs that will help people or specific people that their whole job is to help you figure out what your options are. Like, I think there's like geriatric lawyers she mentioned or something like that. Right. There's like certain lawyers that deal with like geriatric laws and like medical laws around that. And then there's certain professions that deal with like figuring out what your next step should be in terms of where you are on your like you know, path, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, so I guess, I guess also just like talking to your doctors, getting everyone's opinion, talking to your family and friends, doing some research, seeing what your options are. Um, like if you find out you have a terminally ill cancer, you know, disease or something like that. Um, cause it does feel overwhelming, like all the different things that are out there and they're not necessarily connected. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like with government, highly disjointed. Yes. They're all disjointed and like, it's kind of unclear sometimes what your options are, what's affordable, what's, you know, available to you. So maybe even finding someone that can help you figure that out or reading this book because this book was really helpful with that. Um, I feel like when I when I come to that point where I'm like, okay, maybe like 10 years, I'm like, revisit and be like, okay, now I need to like really sit down and do it. <laughs> Do it now. We're, we're going to put, I'm going to pull a bunch of the worksheets and stuff, and then we can go through it for ourselves. And then we can also use that as an exercise to prepare that would be, for having a conversation with our parents. I would yeah. love that. And other love. I do want to yeah, talk to my mom. You know about what? That I stuff. tell Phil I have a cold and she breaks down. So <laughs> I need She's some, gonna need and help. some hard, yeah. hard written rules. <laughs> yes. Zach and I decided that we're going to put a glass case in the hallway. That's one of those break in case of emergency. <laughs> but it's going to be like in Have case of emergency or death. And it's going to have like the life insurance policy information, the advanced directives for our care, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I actually have something like that. I have a folder in my house and Phil knows where it is. Good. That's so ideal. Brilliant. See, my mom just tells That's me my where she's hidden her number. jewelry. It's like, if you can't come to work, call this number. Tell my dad, get a bunch of money. <laughs> but yeah, that's way more helpful. But actually, part of my plan, if I died young, was to be like, I need the three of you, and I need to write this in my will or whatever, to sit down with Phil and be like, finances right? <laughs> all right you got this much money this is how much the mortgage is like well and so that was part of what went in the book too was just like here's the year of grieving where it's like okay everything there's enough money from life insurance or whatever but like which of the friends takes over like the finance yeah right and just you're not gonna just takes place. it away and like mm-hmm. who do you move in with mm-hmm. because there's no way that my husband should be left alone he's if moving I die. in with us 
he's a very all of us are moving friend. in with you. Yes. All of anyone yeah. dies. <laughs> your house is our post hospice. Yeah, you're my retirement home. <laughs> Put it in the fucking document. <laughs> but like just thinking through those things in advance where it's like, okay, when you're in that really, you know, grievous state. Yeah. Not having to make those decisions. It's just like your community has already been informed how you want them to come around and support you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And making it easy for them to do that. I did have one more interesting quote that I just found in my notes. It says, more than two-fifths of Americans over 65 are on more than four medications, and many of these drugs increase their risk of falling, developing dementia, or damaging a vital organ. Two-fifths. That's crazy. That is like a huge amount of people. That kind of blew my mind when I thought, when I really thought about that. How many people are medicated, but older people that are medicated that also it greatly increases their chances of developing like life threatening or quality of life reducing symptoms or accelerating accelerating their aging somehow and then medication sorry i i've just i'm just now finding all of my like little quotes but it says a part of the next part of that is medication reactions and people over 65 account for one-fourth of all emergency room visits Hmm. and half of all hospitalizations for medication errors some of which prove fatal your best case scenario is that it's an expensive miserable trip to the hospital that you get to go home after the end of it it is mind-boggling how easy it is to make a medication error Mm-hmm. so easy and like i said people go to different pharmacies to fill mm-hmm. different drugs so no one no doctor no pharmacist knows that the this person's taking both those drugs well you just like remembering to take your morning pills and your night pills i do it with the fucking dog like <laughs> did you give him his morning pills i don't remember did oh. you give him his morning pills guess we're double dosing the dog today like yeah kind of shit it's like how easy is it it's so right. easy to fuck up so i did find the doctor questions that I thought were super helpful for deciding whether or not to continue with some of the more high-risk procedures or treatment Mm -hmm. plans versus Mm -hmm. switching to comfort care. Mm -hmm. And I can run through them really quickly. Yeah, It was asking the doctor, can you sketch the usual trajectory of my illness? And she breaks down these Mm -hmm. really cool trajectories in the book where they're sort of like looping ones where you're in and out of the hospital a lot, but you have intermittent better periods. There's like a slow and steady decline trajectory. um, And then you just drop dead. But she has like all of these. And it was super helpful to be able to ask the doctor, like, which of these patterns is the trajectory of my illness so that I know what I'm sort of going into? Mm-hmm. And what type of treatment I want to pursue. Um, what do you hope this treatment will do for me? How will it affect how I feel day to day? Pros, cons, alternatives. What is it like to die of my disease and how can medicine ease my symptoms? Mm-hmm. So if you know your question. terminal and you sort of know your timeline, but you want the best quality of life possible mm-hmm. or you want to be able to be conscious all the way until death and be able to have conversation with your family, like those might be different right. medication options. Right. Um, will you still be my doctor if I opt for strictly palliative care? Because this is a really tough decision if you're saying, I'm not going to go through with this treatment, I'm going for palliative care, but then do I lose this relationship that I've built up with a doctor who I trust Mm -hmm. for decades? And then at what point do patients with my disease benefit most from hospice? So the doctor can give you advice on when that transition point might be for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, great questions. also a lot... And especially with terminal illnesses, there are societies and groups of people who have 
I'm trying to think of an example. The only thing of is ALS because that one's like fresh on my mind. But there are like the ALS Society and they have like an amazing Q&A section groups that meet up monthly to especially for new members to talk them through like what to expect and just have a point of contact of people who are going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so like especially with cancer specific types of cancer and stuff like that finding community like becca said of people who have gone through it family members who know what's about to happen and resources to have because some of that stuff like you're so stressed out you don't want to look up this information like what does medicare mm-hmm. cover and not mm-hmm. cover when you have pancreatic cancer versus lung cancer mm-hmm. like shit like that and it's like right. oh these people have gone through it and they're there to provide support and like Use it. Yeah, especially for cancer, because a lot of survivors will serve as patient advocates mm-hmm. because they had someone do that for them during their course of treatment. So they go and they volunteer to be a patient advocate and they will come with you and your family to your appointments. They will take the notes because if this is your first time going through treatment for a particular type of cancer, it's a really big learning curve and it's so much to take in and you're probably going to be on pretty hefty medications and treatments. So you might not be quite there at your appointments. Your family member who's there who might be making these decisions for you normally might also be really emotional and they may miss key points that the Mm -hmm. doctor makes, Mm -hmm. but having a patient care advocate who's gone through it, they already know the language the doctor's using. They're kind of familiar with at least what treatment they went through or the decisions they had to make. And they can take those notes and then break it down for you after. And it's a super, super valuable, amazing, like, volunteer service that people do. Yeah. When it's hard to know what questions to ask when you don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. Right. So, like, having someone around who's gone through it. Right. Or sometimes it's nurses also. Like, people who have been in care for those types of patients a lot will also serve as care advocates, like patient advocates. It would have been great to have something like that with my dad because I I remember going to the first appointment. It was like our whole family went to the doctor's appointment uh, to discuss like his cancer and our options. And I remember just being so overwhelmed. Like I didn't even know what to ask. I didn't know. There was no real conversation around all of the possibilities Mm -hmm. and what exactly what the, you know, those types of questions, what does it look like for someone that has my disease? What is the trajectory? There was none of that. It felt very much like this elephant in the room of like, well, what are his chances kind of thing, which doctors never want to talk about, obviously, because there's a lot of risk involved with that. But I, I wanted to talk about it. And clearly that was not going to be discussed of like, what what does this really look like here? What does this disease look like? What is his what are the chances? What are the different options? The only conversation was what's the most aggressive treatment that we can have? And so we they went with a a type of I think actually think it was a trial chemo that they did um to treat it. But I, I even remember my dad wanting to explore other options because he did ask about um, less invasive options because now in some hospitals they do offer you alternatives to chemo um, and I remember him talking about that because he was very scared of chemo and it kind of was just completely dismissed at the time and I think my mentality was also like well that's all bullshit you know like let's just go with chemo um, 
But looking back on it and like after having read this book, it does make me wish that we had had that, those meetings differently mm-hmm. and had talked about those, you know, had taken that more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like, you know, chemo is probably still the most effective, you know, yeah. way to deal with cancer. But, but, but like what Julie said, if someone came up to me right now and said, Maggie, you have lung cancer. I don't think I would ask any questions. I would just sit there in shock and like not know how to feel, be thinking about my family immediately, be thinking about like end of life stuff. And I, my next question wouldn't be like, what other treatment options do I have? The only thing going on in my head would be, I have cancer. Yeah. Right. right. So like having someone who's a little bit separated, not a direct family member. Mm-hmm. Who's also God, knowledgeable about it. Who is knows so about it. Helpful. God, I can't even imagine like how much that could help people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, is interesting. I remember Googling it too. And it the numbers were not great. It was like, you know, your chance of survival after five years was like 50%, which is better than some. But... I guess I had a lot of questions around that that I never asked the doctors because it was like, well, what? It, why is it 50%? What? What's the cause? Is it like environmental? Is it because most people go back to drinking and smoking? Like, what are the... What are the ways to prevent that? And I wanted my dad to ask those questions, but he was too scared to want to, want to know. He didn't want to know. He didn't even Google his cancer once. Not that we know of. He just wanted to, he was like, whatever the doctor says. He didn't even look it up. There's some bliss to ignorance. Yeah. I, I have offered to friends before that if they are facing a sudden illness that's unexpected that they don't know a lot about and they they have questions that they want to Google, but they don't want to end up in the um, yeah. WebMD <laughs> spiral of death. Oh my God, I do that all the time. Where it's like, you have a cough, you might be dying. You know? I literally do that on it like a daily basis. So I've offered like, to my friends. Like, my left knee feels yeah. weird. <laughs> <laughs> MedMD tells me I'm dying. <laughs> right, right. So I've offered to friends and this offer stands for all of you if you ever need it. But if you're facing something like that and you just want to send your questions to me, I'm happy to go and parse any available medical literature. I love that. And read it and come back without the spiral of death, you know. It's very appreciated. <laughs> I was I did that last night at three in the morning because I was looking at my why do I have a lump on my wrist? Oh god. Mm. <laughs> oh, Anyways, it's not all pretty. You're it's dying. Pretty. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> did y'all make any decisions about your own desires for end of life care or death? I honestly, this, I I have to read it again to get to that point. Um, I think for me, it made me realize how important it is for my parents to have this information. Um, And in my grandma, my grandma's still alive. And like, I mean, I don't think she's in a mind where she could do these things, but maybe they could still be discussed. And I think that my it's my dad's mom. And I think my dad and his sister have different views on like quality of life versus length of life um, for grandma. And I just really wish that he would read this or that his sister would read this or that they would both read this and just approach it differently. Cause right now it's like, you know, grandma's been dying for years and she, she's just got an incredibly healthy body. (laughs) Um, But it's she's just like in this facility and it's a good one but it she's miserable most of the time i don't know anyways it just made me really think about grandma a lot and how i don't want that to be happen with my parents and then of course not with me either but um 
it made me really want to volunteer is like and spend more time in the community. I feel like I already faced most of these issues, like growing up in healthcare, um, volunteering in healthcare, um, thinking facing, you were dying, facing this a year. potential <laughs> potential life ending disease that hopefully I don't have. Um, but I mean, I was going to say earlier that I like, I straight up made a schedule of like, Julie can come have lunch with me on Monday. And then Becca will be there on Monday night for dinner. And then my mom will be there on Tuesday. Like, what about me? You were on the schedule (laughs) too. I got on Tuesday. You're Wednesday, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) You might've got like the primo Friday spot or something. I want want Friday, Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) You just get me wasted. (laughs) She's having a good time, I promise. (laughs) Give her the ice cream. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so like I faced a lot of these like idea like i thought i've thought about these things quite a bit already and i also had like a lot of family members either die young or like go through terminal illnesses Mm -hmm. um in the past two years my brother like had a stroke and we thought he was gonna die so like seeing someone in a younger stage of life dealing with end of life choices kind of thing so like a lot of it i had heard before but i think what kind of impacted me a little bit was that I assumed that based on my life experience that these were things that people knew Mm -hmm. right like I'm like oh yeah like of course you want everyone to know what your life choices are I'm like oh wait listening to this book obviously not everyone goes through these experiences and needs to hear this and like talking to my partner Phil and being like hey have you thought about this she's like no why would I think about that it's like (laughs) right right like People exactly. need to, people need to <laughs> fucking hear this. People yeah. need to know this stuff. These are conversations you need to have. You can't just assume that people know these things. And I think that's a big takeaway for me. It was just assuming that people would like come to these conclusions. Yeah. Right. But yeah. unless you've experienced it, why would you? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. What? Yeah. What really got me is that this kind of what we talked about at the beginning is like everyone should read this book. But really, everyone should read this book. This is not just a like. American specific or, you know, white specific. There's no like, oh, this is only specific to one group of people. Like this is universal. Like everyone is going to experience this or go through this and everyone needs to think about it and plan for it and know what they want and be able to have people, you know, tell people what they want. Um, So it just seems so important that like our parents read it and people we love and know read it. Like I already, I sent it to my mom after like day two. I was like, read this book. Yeah. I'm with Julie though. We got to give them the abbreviated version yeah. because you know, they're not going to read it. Or at least my you parents, the, the workbook. My yeah. parents aren't going to read it. Well, they have those, um, what is it? They have like apps and stuff that, that literally their whole business model is just abbreviating book help self-help books yeah i just mean like we need the three bullet points it's like think about these things and then tomorrow come back and fill out the next page yeah (laughs) think about these things and then come back and fill out the next page i've had the casual conversation with my parents like just this weekend hanging out with my dad i was like you know what like i don't want to personally be on a ventilator and a vegetable if there's no hope of ever coming off of it Mm -hmm. like don't bother kind of thing like if my life's not going to be of good quality and he's like oh yeah 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 me too and i'm like write it the fuck down (laughs) put it put it somewhere god damn it yeah yeah man like even if your parents talk to you about it you don't have a leg to stand on if it's not documented yeah it is interesting for me to think 
just how little I know about what my parents would want. Because mm-hmm. I feel like most people know how I feel about medical care. <laughs> and no one would leave me in a hospital hooked up to a bunch of machines very long. Thank you all. <laughs> um, but I really don't know, you know, for my parents. Yeah. They're pretty young, but still. Well, both they do my- dangerous stuff. <laughs> Your both- whole family's crazy. <laughs> both my parents have said that I would be the one to make the choices. And so based on but that. But again, put that in writing. Yeah, legally, your brother still has a say, well, right? Yeah, both of them do. But based on that, I'm like, well, if you put me in charge, that means that you don't want to be a vegetable. Because like, right. I'm not going to let that happen. Mm-hmm. But one of my other brothers might. So it's like, yeah, if you don't write it down, then I'm also not very... Like, I don't like conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're like, I'm fine making those decisions, but if you don't put it in writing so that it's easy for me to make my case, you're going to destroy the relationship I have with my siblings. Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah, we talked about that earlier too. And it's like, I don't want to fight fucking like all my aunts and uncles to hate me. Oh God. Like shit like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's a thing. I'm going to put in my will that I want to be uploaded to a machine like I would like to be in the show Altered Carbon. Yeah. Just just scam a brain, upload it. I know you can do it. I know you can do it. So even if they don't have the technology to scan your brain and upload you in that way right now, yeah. There are AI projects in the work that basically in the works that create you create a version of your consciousness based on all of the digital artifacts you have out on the internet. I was going to see that. Is it? Watch Black Mirror? I've seen like the first three episodes or something, so I haven't seen that one. I think it's episode number four, so... There's oh a Black God. Mirror episode where this exact same, exactly what you're saying mm-hmm. is an episode. Yeah. But it goes terribly wrong if it's a Black Mirror episode. I would say of the Black Mirror episodes, not terribly wrong, but it definitely doesn't go right. Like, <laughs> it's it's weird. He's not quite right. Like, he's not exactly who he was. Of, of course, yeah. Because he's based on data like, kind of thing. Emails. And, like, that's noticeable. Mm-hmm. sort of situation like he's good he's cool he's nice he's sweet but he's not quite right well i still don't think you would have the awareness the same way like the sense the sentience is a whole nother level but right. to be able to recreate you is well it also be re- that it would off. also wouldn't be me if it wasn't my consciousness uploaded they were just recreating it exactly. i would still be gone i wouldn't be experiencing whatever that replica was experiencing to our current knowledge yeah <laughs> Um, what was your major takeaway, Julie? Yeah. I think we did ours. Did, what was, oh yeah, everyone should read it. That was my takeaway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everyone, read take it. everyone read it. Everyone read it. Julie, what's your takeaway? Chapstick. Chapstick. Yeah. <laughs> right. Her dying wish. I, chapstick and do not leave me in a hospital and I want all the drugs. Hell yeah, drugs. Oh, I was going to highlight one other um key point from a lot of research going on with psilocybin lately um, is that like psilocybin for end of life care for terminal uh, terminally ill patients and it's with a lot of people who you know have near-term death on the horizon from something like cancer and are really you know not at peace with death because most people aren't Mm -hmm. but after going through psilocybin sessions they find such like peace and joy in the remaining days of their life and suddenly feel um a much greater sense of well-being and less fear of death Mm -hmm. and i think that's 
I want to such an amazing area of treatment when I die because <laughs> I do whenever I, whenever I'm on mushrooms. Not that I've ever taken mushrooms because they're illegal, but if I had taken mushrooms, um, you feel like so connected to the world, and you like just feel like everything's breathing together, and everything has like this connection that you just don't feel at all. At least I don't feel at all in my normal state of consciousness. Or you wouldn't had you ever taken mushrooms. Yes, right. Yes, had I ever <laughs> taken mushrooms, I feel like that's how I would feel, and I. I could see being on my deathbed feeling very peaceful being on mushrooms and just thinking like it's fine i'm just going into a different state of being now yeah um so yeah fuck me up on mushrooms man if i'm on my deathbed <laughs> seriously i'm really excited that this research is actually going on because i think it will make a huge difference for you know the next few generations of people going through those yeah life phases it did make me think a lot more about different options because I, I do, I think before I started reading this book, I was very much on the end of like, just keep me alive as long as possible. Because uh, I, I think death is terrifying. I don't think anything comes after it. I think we're just gone. Um, that, that's great, though. That's better than the alternative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I Because you would obviously go to hell. <laughs> Heaven sounds that great either. Yeah, okay. any, yeah see, then the, the other end. Overpopulated Yeah, by the now. thought of eternity also is terrifying. It's like, well, what's outside of that? And then what's outside of that? How does space just keep going on forever and ever? And it doesn't make any sense. What's outside? Something has to be outside of it. What is it in? It never ends. It doesn't make any sense. Being asleep is great. I don't know what people are so worried about not having awareness. <laughs> because it's like the unknown. It's I think just it's terrifying. the moment of transition. Is it's, really yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Having. Yeah. No, I, I did make me think about my other options and caring more about not being uh, miserable. I was going to say, I think I'm especially proud of this podcast topic because, and thank you, Becca, for pushing it because we've been talking about it for a while. Um, I don't think a lot of people our age have conversations with their friends like this. Mm -hmm. And they probably should. Mm -hmm. Like being able to talk openly with your friends about it, it makes it easier to talk openly with your parents about it. Yeah. And like actually take action on some of these items. So mm -hmm. thanks guys. Yeah. I appreciate it too. It I am. Oh, no, I definitely want. Well, one thing is that I feel like in your twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, probably you really like treat your body like a tool and you're like, I, you have to be used for various functions. Um, and I feel like we're, and maybe it's our culture, like we're not encouraged to listen to our body very often. Um, like you kind of play through the pain most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think books like this, where they really emphasize like, hey, if you move your body now, it's going to help it move it later. It just, it just like reminded me of how important it is to be mindful of what your body is telling you, even when you feel young and able-bodied. Yep. I agree. We all need to go to the doctor regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening today. Thanks for tackling this tough subject with us. If you have any follow-up questions or anything to add, any experiences you want to tell us about, we definitely want to hear them. You can go to our website, vaginance.com. Go to our Instagram, at vaginancepodcast. Uh, like, subscribe, all of that fun stuff on wherever it is you get your podcasts. All of that helps us and gets our exposure out and ha and helps us find more people to listen to this, to think about their impending doom. And that's really what <laughs> we're all here for. for. Yeah. I just want everyone to think about death all the time. At least once. <laughs> At least a little I, bit. I do really want to hear if anyone has stories about 
their own experiences with dealing with family end of life situations. That would be really interesting to hear. Absolutely. Let us know. Share your angst and pain and torment. Yeah. Or especially if you had a great experience because you had certain things in place. Please share those stories with us. Give us some hope. Give us hope. Any critical advice or information you have, we want to. true. I feel like most of what I've heard is negative. So if you have a positive story, we'd love it. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And in the show notes, we'll also include a lot of links to different resources, worksheets, um, advanced directives, physician order, post forms, all that kind of fun stuff that you should fill out for yourself and sit down with your parents and loved ones and encourage them to fill out as well. Really, everyone should read this book and make their parents read this book. The Art of Dying Well by Katie Butler. So do we love this book or your money or your life better? Your money or your life. (laughs) We're preaching them both hard. Maybe they should meet and we should have them both as guests simultaneously and see what crazy shit they come up with to talk about. I feel like they would get along very well. Yes. I bet Hmm. they would too. Maybe they're soulmates. If they're not already best friends. Yeah. Might all. Ready me.